0: Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com, TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program, taconnections.com, and Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com.
1: Hey there, airline gurus and geeks. Chris Chimes here and happy to welcome you back to another edition of Airlines Confidential.
2: And I'm Ben Baldanza. It's time for flight over the airline industry. Let's start the taxi and get up in the air. Chris, first some news.
1: So, Ben, here in the U.S., we had a busy earnings week last week to talk about. This week, a couple of airlines applied the tourniquet to the red ink and turned to a quarterly profit, namely Southwest and Alaska. JetBlue and Hawaiian both posted losses but narrowed considerably over 2020 and provided some optimism for 2022 as well. So let's put all this in the blender and make a baldanza smoothie.
2: Okay. We'll see how good this one tastes. Okay. Um, Well, four lower cost airlines, not all the lowest cost airlines, but certainly not the kind of cost base of the big three who've already reported. And Southwest and Alaska reporting a profit for the quarter is really encouraging for the industry. I think it's important to note that both of them fly heavily in geographies that weren't as affected by Omicron as sort of the East Coast was. And in Hawaiians' case, there's still such a destination-specific risk of Hawaii, what Hawaii requires of travelers, whether people are comfortable taking that long of a trip now, risking you know, potentially getting stuck. Of course, there could be worse places getting stuck than Hawaii, but it's still not always the thing you want to have happen. So I think Southwestern Alaska as a combination of their costs and their geography did a great job in the quarter. And I think it's encouraging for the whole industry that it meant demand was strong enough for good quality, lower fare service that they could be profitable, even as we're still not completely out of this pandemic yet. In JetBlue and Hawaiian's case again, the northeast was hit a lot more, so hit a lot more with worker callouts and New York City was sort of the has been sort of the epicenter of the Omicron virus. And Hawaiian again, that that specific destination issue makes it difficult for them I think, to be profitable again until it's just as easy and comfortable to go to Hawaii as it is to go to Florida. That's how I think all this shakes out. When you compare these four airlines' earnings to the three we talked about last week, the real positive message all of this sends is the U.S. airline should have a really good spring and summer if airline demand is what's at issue.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I was looking at some of the chatter and analyst notes and media coverage, a couple of things that jumped out at me. One, I think there's this like, not a growing, but this underlying concern about Southwest costs moving forward and the delta between Southwest costs and ultra low cost carriers is growing more than shrinking. There was some interest in some of the commentary from Alaska as they were moving towards an all-Boeing fleet. Maybe they might be rethinking that a bit. And Alaska was still, you know, canceling like 10% of their, their operations for the month of January. So I think there was still a little bit of commentary about, you know, are their staffing issues settled or they still have some ways to go on that. But overall, some positive outlooks and some positive numbers.
2: I think that's all right, Chris. And um, in Southwest case, I saw that cost note as well. Southwest is really one of the big four. You know, there's an older narrative in this industry that there's these big global airlines like American United Delta and low-cost airlines like Southwest right? And then this new emergent class, ULCCs, started a while ago. But Southwest, in terms of the way they behave, in terms of the kind of customer base they carry and things, really acts more like an American, United, or Delta today than they do like even a JetBlue or a Spirit or Frontier. And so the costs are a combination of that business approach, Plus the fact that they've been an airline for a long time. So they have lots of senior employees. While they have plenty of new planes, they have plenty of older planes as well. So they've got a cost structure that has forced them to go into airports that they wouldn't have gone into when they were younger, for example, like Newark or LaGuardia or Chicago O'Hare or something like that and forces them to sort of play more in the business sector space, which is why they've sort of become like that. And that's a challenge they have as an airline, but they still do have a lower cost structure because they're more efficient than the three biggest airlines. So they're in a real interesting position, but they've got a. They're walking on eggs a little bit in terms of how closely do they step up to that true legacy mindset.
1: Yeah. Let's switch it up a second, Ben, a different topic. We've discussed labor shortages in the airline industry quite a bit, including pilot shortages that are rippling down into the regional sector, most especially here in the U.S., But did you see that survey out of the U.K. that found that more than a third of commercial airline pilots eligible and wanting to fly have not returned to the cockpit from a layoff during the pandemic? I don't know if I'm stunned, confused or intrigued by this.
2: Well, I'm certainly stunned and confused and probably intrigued, too. I did see that story and I'm amazed it was in the U.K., And so maybe in the survey pool, there were more pilots from the Middle Eastern airlines, which have just cut back on so much flying because they have these big airplanes that fly really long haul. And that's pretty much all they do. And that traffic really hasn't come back yet. And also lots of charter operations in the UK, more than in the US. And I don't know how. Um, reliable that business has been as vacation spots may be opening or not opening or have different vaccine requirements and the like. So I was really shocked that the number was as big as this. I had to think, well, this has to be something about the population they surveyed. But at the same time, I'm also thinking that even here in the U.S., When the pandemic first hit, a lot of senior employees, including pilots, left the workforce, haven't come back. Now, this said that they want to fly, and so maybe this is a group that isn't one of those, or maybe it's one that took an early out, but now they want to come back again. I was just shocked at this survey, just like you were, Chris, and in some ways, If this is a group that wants to fly again, I think there are going to be opportunities with the world becoming a little bit more normal again as we go through this year and with likely the need and willingness of passengers to travel not only short haul but long haul again. I would hope that every pilot who's out there and capable and willing to come to work has a plane they can fly this summer. Listeners,
1: we appreciate your downloading Airlines Confidential each week, just like we appreciate the support of Seabury Capital Group, the specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting more than 25 years advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's widely respected team has superior industry knowledge and an unmatched depth of relationships with decision-makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com.
2: And we also want to thank TA Connections, which procures over 30 million rooms annually on behalf of their clients and makes travel management easier and less expensive with AI-powered booking applications and negotiated rate programs. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management.
1: Ben, one more quick news item. The Wall Street Journal's annual ranking of U.S. airlines has been published. Last year, we had our friend Scott McCartney on to talk about the analysis. Scott's retired from the journal, but the list continues. I guess to no one's surprise, Delta finished first again. And at the bottom, at number nine, was JetBlue. You love geeking out on lists and rankings, wondering what you found of interest or surprising uh, in this report.
2: Well, there were a couple of things about this that I found really interesting. One is that the definition of what makes the airline good or not has evolved over the last couple of years. More customers care so much about, am I going to be safe on this plane? And do I believe the airline's doing the right thing? Or is my flight even going to operate or is it going to get canceled, right? Sort of these pandemic related things. Pre-pandemic, some of the ratings in this kind of survey were more around physical comfort on the plane and on time performance, of course, and some other things. So number one, I was surprised that When you looked at the methodology, how important sort of the post-pandemic view of flying was in this. And Delta finishing first wasn't a surprise because they've canceled the fewest number of flights. They have run a better operation in part because of scheduling more lazy airplanes. What I mean by that is, you know, they have more airplanes don't fly as high utilization and they're able to recover from that with a really good fleet to make their operation a little bit more reliable. The other thing, Chris, that bothers me about the survey, and Scott and I have talked about this, is if I told you that a BMW 7 Series was a better car than a Ford Focus, you'd say, well, yeah, Ben, but that BMW costs probably five times as much as the Ford Focus. And I'd say, well, yeah, there's that. And in in these surveys, they don't include price. And so the implication in these surveys is that you can fly any of these airlines for the same price. So which one does a better job serving you? But I think anyone who's flown in the last couple of years and paid for their travel knows that Delta has high average fares and airlines like JetBlue have much lower average fares. That doesn't mean that you still don't want an on-time flight and you want to be safe on board and things like that. But there's value at different points on the price scale, and the airline industry has moved into that space more over the last five years or so, just like everything else we buy. And I would like to see a paper as a, as great as the Wall Street Journal evolve their ranking to say we're going to go toward more of a value rating, meaning what do you get compared to what you pay, not just who's absolutely better.
1: Yeah, that's fair. I recall, you know, 25 years ago, Air Americans' whole shtick was their on-time machine, right? They, they marketed their performance as the tool to increase business travel or to increase business travelers and to gain a bigger share of that market. And they were very focused on that on-time machine. And To some degree, I think, you know, this annual survey forces carriers to get back to that and answer these questions um, a little bit more than they might on a routine basis. Even though the DOT publishes their monthly numbers or quarterly numbers all the time and it's out there, uh, airline marketing has moved away from this in so many different ways. And I understand that, but I think it's useful for the carriers to have to answer to the operational issues in an objective way, if you will. I, I agree that they're not all the same as far as how they operate and how they price and what you're buying as a customer. And certainly when you're paying a lot more for a fare, you have a reason to have a higher expectation. But uh, I think there's a, an upside to some level of quantification of all these metrics as well.
2: I agree with that, Chris. Absolutely. And the Wall Street Journal, to their credit, does a good job of not just saying here's the ranking, but here's exactly how we determine this. So, in some senses, you can say, well, this is more important to me than others. So, while Delta's great in the way they measured it, I'm someone who wants to save more money. So, maybe I'll accept that this other airline finished a little bit lower because this certain aspect wasn't as good as Delta's.
1: Yep. All, all fair points. Well, we've got two guests to bring on board this week. First, a quick chat with our Waldo, Chris Sloan. We'll find out where he's been. And then Ken McKenzie, former Airbus and
2: Spirit Airlines senior executive, and a current board member
1: of Canada
2: Jetlines. Chris, as you know, often comes to the show and reports on firsts in the industry, like he took the first Breeze flight and the first JetBlue flight to London and such. But today, he's going to talk about a different kind of first. Welcome back,
3: Chris. It's great to be back, and uh, your roving correspondent over Christmas didn't get to do much roving. We, uh, we had the uh, Christmas COVID quarantine quagmire family vacation where we got uh, a little Omicron uh, uh, diagnosis, which meant we, got, uh, we were stuck in, uh, in, in a foreign country down in St. Lucia for
1: uh, quarantine, couldn't leave and returned home for a long period of time. So Chris, you know, I think it's useful to kind of hear your experience, and you know, as travel ramps up, these things are going to continue to happen, but like, how how did you prepare for it? How did you deal with it? Is there a way to prevent it?
3: Well, I mean, basically, we had a trip planned into the Caribbean, uh, and you know, I've been a pretty intrepid traveler throughout the last two years of the pandemic, and my family and I took every precaution possible, which means vax, waxed, uh, boosted, uh, and, and so forth, and of course, to fly internationally. Uh, you need w- the day before to have a negative COVID test, and which we did. And so, you know, we felt we were taking every precaution. But of course, there is a calculated risk here because, you know, Omicron, uh, you know, had reared its head, and yet we all chose to go as a family. And, uh, you know, the long and short of it is, is once we got down there, you know, we had a great week, but, you know, we developed a little bit of a, my son developed a cold then I did, and it was kind of very light cold, which kind of gave us the thought, Perhaps we might be, um, you know, we might have something, but, um, you know, the resort was taking every precaution. Uh, There is low vaccination rates in the nation we are going to, St. Lucia, but staff, all staff in the hospitality industry are required to have vaccinations. If you were in the hotel, all staff are always observing masks. And even as guests, you cannot approach them or the bar or restaurant without having masks on. There's temperature checks everywhere. So we thought we were taking, you know, as much precautions as possible. And yet, uh, you know, the day before uh, to return to the United States, I received the positive uh, diagnosis that we had a, uh, you know, COVID or that I did, but uh, the symptoms were pretty mild, as is kind of the telltale sign. And we were stuck there. And because my family was with me, uh, they would be stuck there as well for, in my case, uh, 13 days from the time that we first developed symptoms. And then we had to have multiple tests. And um, you know, it's a very different experience, uh, you know, when you're in a foreign country like that. And um, though we were in paradise, we called it Papillon because you're in a prison. You cannot leave your room. And people are like, well, that's, you know, still the worst places to be stuck. I'm like, that's true. We're very, very fortunate. But again, you're also paying for this. This isn't free. Um, there are COVID rates at our particular resort. But, you know, you are under a lock and key and they are looking at you and watching you uh, with doctors and nurses twice a day to make sure you know, tracking your symptoms and also uh, watching you to make sure you observe protocol and do not leave your room, which of course we wouldn't. So it was quite an experience for us.
2: And Chris, were all three of you there and were you all able to stay in the room together or how did that work?
3: Yeah, all three of us were there. And uh, when I received that uh, that positive test, obviously we were tested the next day to make certain that, um, to confirm the results and also confirm that my wife and son didn't have it. And we, by the way, we were subjected from the antigen to the much more precise and much more expensive PCR test. But because they are with me and in direct contact, they had to stay as well. So technically I had to stay 13 days from the time that the first symptoms were uh, there and they had to quarantine for seven days. And at that point we would be tested again. And yes, we were stay, re- remained in the same room though we were moved away from the general population into a larger suite where we could actually somewhat social distance from one another. But, you know, I was going to be able to leave regardless because, because I was going, able to get a letter of, of, the, of recovery from the, uh, from the health ministry. However, the day before my son and wife departed, they had to be tested too. And if they would have been positive, they would have had to stay an additional 10 to 13 days, which that's where things could get catastrophic. So it's a very, very involved uh, you know process. and uh, you know we were all there for a, about two weeks and the vacation was only supposed to be uh, five days.
1: So whose rules were these with regard to the 10 to 13 days and the quarantine?
3: Well, that's that's a great question, Chris, because in St. Lucia, you know, at this point, I was like, hey, this is great, you know the main there's but you're dealing with two separate rules. We were like, oh okay. The United States has just reduced the CDC got uh, recognized the CDC guidelines down to a 5-day quarantine from the disappearance of symptoms. I mean there's obviously so many different protocols and it's not even and it's not seamless and then, of course St. Lucia says well we don't observe the CDC. We observe the WTO and the WTO at that point is was saying 13 days from the onset of symptoms or 10 days you know, from recovery. So even though the United States would have allowed us back in and we would have been allowed to board our airline after the five days of the CDC, the St. Lucia government does not recognize that. So we simply were not permitted to leave our hotel room and even be anywhere even on the property, much less get through go through the transit through the airport. So there's definitely a patchwork difference between the way you know nations recognize that and the point of fact. I flew to St. Dominican Republic uh, this week, just it was a simple day trip. And, you know, people are like, are you crazy? You know, your advice is not to travel internationally right now uh, during Omicron because of the risk. And I'm like, well, because I've had COVID, that was not going to be a deterrent. However, uh, if you fly the Dominican Republic, you do not even need to show a proof of vaccination. You're not given any kind of temperature track checks. You not you don't even have to have proof whether or not that you have COVID or not. That is still a, that's a U.S. thing. And so, my COVID test was really all about coming back in the United States as opposed to going to that country. So you've got to be very, very aware of not just where you're going, but the process of also coming back in the United States. So it's, it's a, you know, I think you have to have a pretty, being a pretty intrepid traveler right now, uh, and prepare for the, you know, disruption if you are traveling internationally. And, um, uh, and to that point we were supposed to go to Iceland to see the Northern Lights. And we've switched that over to Alaska because at least we're in the United States, which is a lot different than if you're navigating uh, a foreign country.
1: So Chris, knowing what you know now, what's your advice for someone contemplating international travel?
3: My advice is I'm not sure right now it's the best time to do it unless you have had COVID because again, we were double vaxxed and boosted and we had a breakthrough. And certainly those numbers are declining, but there's always that risk. So if you're going to take the risk then I think you have to be prepared to understand what the financial implications could be. Um, there are insurance policies available, but they are expensive. They're not necessarily all-encompassing. You know, insurance policies typically cover evacuation and hospitalization more than actually covering, you know, trip disruption insurance doesn't necessarily cover the additional hotel stays by, you know, for COVID. And that, you know, in our case, it was about four dollars to $5,000 extra for that week. And also you have to be cognizant of what medically it's covering. We had to pay for all of our additional tests ourselves and our medical plan doesn't necessarily cover that either. So you've got to be aware of those risks. You've got to be prepared to what's the, the disruption going to be back at your home? You know, are you going to have, you're going to be missing work? Are you going to have tra- tra- anybody back home that needs to be taken care of? Uh, even going into a country, you know, you've got to think about, do I need to have devices? Do I need to, in our case, we had a lot of board games. We kind of bought a lot of extra things in ca- just in case, something like this would happen. So I think you have to consider the risk of what's happening and rem- remind yourself that it's very, very uh, you know, fluid right now.
2: Well, Chris, while you were there and couldn't leave your room, did you at least have sort of Wi-Fi and could you stay connected to friends and family and to the extent you had work to do, do it from the room?
3: Yeah. I mean, for me and my uh, family, uh, you know, my son was in paradise because he got to play a lot of Fortnite and video games without Internet connection. I think we would have all gone a little stir crazy. But uh, there was a lot of Netflix binging. We called it Groundhog Day. It was uh, we, there was a you know, we, we set up a little exercise routine. You know, I got to why, why Chris was uh, ringing in the New Year's in Times Square, uh, you know, dropping the ball with the carnival. Uh, you know, we were eating Kentucky fried chicken in our room. Um, so we didn't quite have, uh, you know, and and by the way, they didn't compass champagne. So there was none of that. Um, but yes, you get, you know, the, you get, we got the you know, the freshman 15, we got the quarantine 15 where they, you know, you, you do get your room service, but you may not get towels. It may take three hours to get dinner, but it's, uh, you know, we kept ourselves occupied and, uh, and, you know, a lot of board games uh, and a lot of uh, exercise on the balcony. And, um, you know, it's one of those things. If it wasn't going to kill us, it was going to bring us closer. But uh, I, I will say once we all got off the plane back in Miami, I think everybody was like, I think let's all have a little go our own separate ways and have a little me time without because we were on top of each other. But it was a uh, it was uh, quite an experience. And I can tell you that, uh, uh, you know, you feel like you're like, OK, this is what house arrest feels like. Because I can tell you the exhilaration of being able to walk out of your hotel room and leave a vacation and be able to see other people again was a wonderful uh, feeling. So it was like the scene, of the Blues Brothers, when Elwood walks out of the out of the jail. But again, it wasn't Joliet. It wasn't that bad. We were we were in a lovely part of the world.
1: Well, Chris, obviously, we're glad you're safe. We're glad you're all all healthy again. Um, we're glad you're back Uh On u.s shores but i think you underscore one of the many challenges airlines are going to continue to face for a while with regard to how to continue to build international demand and to that point you know
3: i think i just wanted to raise one other part because i neglected to mention i think it's also really important to understand you know which airline you're flying and what the policies for your ticket are i mean in our case because we bought the ticket on award miles we were able to make those changes and redeposit the miles with at no cost. However, we are flying during the holidays, which made where the loads were very high. So even though we may not be able to be charged, there may be fewer flights and fewer frequencies, and there was fewer availability, you know, to get back home regardless. And in some cases, I mean, obviously, if you're buying a restricted ticket or you're with a, an airline that does have cha- change fees and fare differences, and that is also an additional cost and expense. And also consideration is is there going to even be able to be, be able to be the C inventory to get home when you want to? And if you can't, then you're going to be paying for additional room and board. And uh, and by the way, potentially even having your family members contract it while they're there, which actually happened to somebody in front of me who stayed an extra day because she couldn't get out, and they contracted it and they had to stay seven more days. So it's crazy.
2: Well, Chris. Thank you for telling us this story. I've been thinking for a long time that a big limiter to the return of international travel is this kind of risk. But you just made it so real that now I'm convinced that's got to be an enormous limiter.
3: I think you're right. I think if you want some uh, sun and fun, come down to Florida and uh, wait. The Caribbean will be there uh, once
2: uh, once Corona is a little bit under control. Well, thanks for coming on the show again, Chris. Hope to have you back soon and glad you're back and safe. And we'll be back with more Airlines Confidential in a moment.
0: Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net. The hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. Thearchive.net is now
2: boarding. Well, we're happy to invite Ken McKenzie to the podcast. Ken, Welcome on board, and why don't you start out by telling all of our listeners about your illustrious aviation career and what you're doing today.
4: Well, hello, Ben. Thanks for the opportunity to join you and your listeners. It's, uh, it's a real privilege to be on this recording. I've been fortunate in my career you know, on the aviation side to have a lot of different and varied experiences. Started out, uh, actually right out of high school, joining the Royal Canadian Air Force, and uh, was a, a pilot of both uh, fixed-wing and helicopters for uh, 14 years, uh, serving over in Europe with NATO, and then did a stint up in Arctic doing search and rescue flying. And it, it was just a great start to aviation and it gave me a real uh, taste for both the uh, the operating side and also the leadership side of aviation. Uh, leaving after uh, 14 years, joining the uh, the booming Canadian airline industry at that time, a lot of hiring was taking place. I joined Canadian Airlines, served with them for uh, a couple of years, and then took a leave of absence to go overseas and run the flight program for the United Nations High Commissioner of Refugees in West Africa, uh, which was a, an amazing experience. Finished after two years, uh, returned to the the new Air Canada. Air Canada had taken over Canadian and uh, uh, joined uh, that group of, of folks and uh, came back as a line pilot. And then shortly thereafter was the chief pilot of regulatory affairs. And uh, on the Air Canada Jazz, the regional side of, of Air Canada. Uh, was offered to join WestJet um, a few years later, and uh, joined them. Served as their executive vice president of operations for five years, and then got the call that every Canadian dreams of. A headhunter was calling to ask if you'd like to live someplace with a palm tree and a beach, and uh, that was uh, to join your team, Ben, over at Spirit Airlines as your chief operating officer. And it was a, a fascinating experience to to move away from a relatively small. Representation of the airline industry because Canada has so few operators to come to, you know, the center of where all the activity is taking place and the action is down in the United States. After my time serving uh, with uh, Spirit, joined uh, uh, Airbus, Airbus Americas, with uh, at their headquarters in Virginia, and uh, was there for for quite a few years, and then decided that it was time to to retire and move on to other things, and have been occupying my time with a little bit of consulting and, and some other work that. Uh, that has been keeping me occupied for sure.
1: Well, Ken, you touched upon it in your introduction with regard to your time at WestJet. We had a great conversation a few months back with David Nealman talking about his experience with startups. Take us back to that time when you joined WestJet and describe the environment and what what created that great brand? What were the opportunities there?
4: Yeah, it was fascinating. Thanks thanks for the question, Chris. Uh, it, it, was, it was an amazing opportunity to be a part of that team. Um, they, they took all of what you expect in an airline, operational performance, safety, you know, how, how do you write the manuals, how do you train, all the stuff you expect to see in a great airline. And they decided that they wanted to take some of the the bad parts of what the founders had experienced at other airlines and try to push those aside and focus on on what really mattered. And one of the things that really grabbed me uh, from the very beginning was their, their focus was on WestJetters. That's what the, we were all called as employees. And the idea was that if they... If the company and the leadership focused on WestJetters, then the WestJetters would focus on our guests, and our guests would then be the benefit of our, our shareholders. And it sounds really simple. A lot of the times you get asked to go speak on culture when I was at WestJet, and people would say, well, that, that's actually pretty simple. And it's like, yeah, it is, uh, but it's hard to execute. Um, the executive team decisions that were made at WestJet always started with, well, how will this affect the culture? And do we have enough input from the rank and file to make a decision that's going to be far-reaching? And so rather than the usual, well, how does this affect the bottom line? Uh, we would look at the cultural aspect first. And if if we felt that it was either neutral or beneficial, then we would look at, can we actually uh, do this profitably? The leadership structure was set up in such a way that culture was front and center, uh, right from Clive Beto on down. Uh, numerous opportunities to engage all WestJetters in the direction and the focus of the organization. In fact, even on my flight out to do my interview, um, I asked the flight attendant to sit beside me and we started talking and I asked him, you know, can you explain to me what earning per share is? Uh, Can you tell me what the last uh, quarterly results were of WestJet? And and he was bang on. He knew everything that was going on in the organization. And uh, because he was an owner, Um, I think one of the key aspects to their culture when we talk about. Uh, WestJet focusing on WestJetters, WestJetters focusing on guests, guests focusing on shareholders. It was the idea to create owners out of the employee group. And uh, the the famous uh, story within WestJet was of a, a pizza meeting with the four founders and them sitting around trying to decide, you know, how how much could they give back to employees to ensure that they really engaged with this dream of a, a new airline. And uh, Sandy, who was the CFO at the time, was said, "Well, what if we?" Put an employee share purchase plan together that was two percent, and uh, people grumbled about that. Uh, the other three folks, he goes, well, let me do the math, and based upon their modeling, they said, well, we could do two percent. They said, well, what if we do more? And uh, they got to five percent. They got to seven percent. Eventually, at the end of that meeting, they said, well, we think we can actually do a twenty percent employee share purchase plan, and that's what it was. And so, from uh, from anybody in the organization, uh, they could take twenty percent of their gross pay, put it into WestJet stock, and then the airline matched it and that really turned people around. They really were focused uh, on, on the results of the organization and getting those results uh, between the employee share purchase plan and the profit sharing plans that were in place. The direction and the results of the organization individually impacted uh, the folks who worked there and uh, it produced the amazing results that we've all seen. Um, it reinforced the culture, it created a very dedicated, loyal staff and in turn, uh, great customer service.
2: What a great story, Ken, and uh, what a great culture and airline that was created there and and still exists and is one of the two biggies in Canada, of course. Now, early in your career, though, at some point you're flying airplanes, you're flying helicopters, something gave you the bug to move into management and be a leader in this sort of space. What prompted that change?
4: That's a great question, Ben. Thanks for asking it. Deb. I've had a couple of people ask me that before. Uh, my wife, Sonia, always says, you're so cute. You, you actually pick up the phone and call people. and think they'll call you back. And uh, <laughs> this is a great example of that story that if you want to do something different, take a step out and see what can happen. You know, happily flying along uh, all over North America in my little airplane, uh, doing what line pilots do and really enjoying uh, the opportunity to, to get to know uh, the team you're working with, uh, the aircraft itself and providing customer service. Just, I think it was mostly from my time in the military. We were given a lot more responsibility at a really young age. I thought, well, I'd like to do a little bit more. And uh, so one day I got up the courage and picked up the phone and called our CEO and said, you don't know who I am. And I'm not looking for uh, a bigger title or a pay raise. I'd just like to do a little bit more. And he laughed and he said, oh, you know, let me call you back. It took a while to get in touch with him. Um, eventually our chief operating officer called me back and he kind of chuckled when I said what I wanted to do. And they kind of bounced me around enough until I finally ended up with the director of training. And he said, well, I've got a job that uh, that I think uh, is the perfect fit. And that was the, the chief pilot of regulatory affairs job uh, up to that point, uh, you know, safely fly the aircraft, show up for work on time every day, build a little bit of a reputation that you're a, a, a reliable person. And uh, the other part was to, to start looking around to see what else did we need and then jump in as a volunteer to, to step into some of those roles. And the biggest one at the time was we were trying to move from paper to uh, a digital representation of the manuals and the approach plates and basically the electronic flight bag and stepping into that to say, well, I would like to do more. And um, this is more. And if it results in something else, that would be great. Uh, and so fortunately for me, spending some time volunteering to, to fill a need that, that needed to get fixed, um, then taking that first, I guess, scary step to reach up to the leadership of the organization to raise your hand and say, I, I'd, I'd like a chance to do a little bit more. Would you consider me? Fortunately, in, in my case, uh, that uh, that did happen. It was years later that uh, I was having a one on one discussion with Clive Beto, the founder of WestJet. And I said, Clive, what, what's the secret of your success? And uh, I, I love the advice he gave. He said, you know, in, from his estimation in his life, success comes at the crossing of two things, uh, opportunity and ability. And he said that uh, opportunities something that you don't have a lot of control over, but ability is. And so you need to be spending your time um, getting the qualifications, doing the education, volunteering to do different things and getting the experiences you need so that when the door actually opens and you have a chance to go through it, you have to be ready and capable of doing that. And so I always kept that in my mind that, uh, you know, be ready for opportunity by ensuring that your abilities are at the level they need to be to take advantage of those opportunities.
1: So, Ken, when you joined Bandit Spirit, you got more than sunshine and palm trees. You also got, you know, the inside view of an ultra ultra low cost carrier and a very successful one. Without giving away secrets, what did you see on the from the legacy side of the business? Who was successful in competing with ultra low cost carriers, and how did they do that? If you were going to run a legacy carrier today, what would be your approach to a ULCC?
4: Yeah, it was, it was fascinating, Chris, um, coming and, and seeing what Ben was creating and then Bitman ultimately created with the, the first really successful ULCC in, in North America. It was uh, uh, very focused on the bottom line while still in, ensuring safety uh, was the first priority of the day. And while being there um, and watching other folks bumble around trying to compete with us, uh, it, it took a long time. And one of the things that I found really beneficial moving over to Airbus was you had a chance to see what everybody was doing uh, with the same aircraft type. And the ULCCs are really starting to impact the, the legacy carriers. And as much as some of them may not want to admit it, uh, they were losing market share and, and seeing you know, small startups really become incredibly profitable while well, they've been flying around for decades and still struggling. Uh, what was fascinating: a couple of them that started to get it right. Uh, they they started to take the model uh, that Ben introduced of of unbundling uh, all their services to the point where I remember uh, one of our North American legacy carriers would come over every six months. We'd sit down and graciously, they'd give us a presentation uh, of uh, basically what makes this airline work. And every six months, they'd come and talk and they'd say, well, you know, look, we're profitable. Isn't this exciting? And started to realize and ask the question, well, if it wasn't for the fact that you'd unbundled everything, and you're selling all these ancillary services, would you be making any money at all? So if you went back to your old model of just charge for the ticket, and that's, that's all we could do. And the answer was no. Ancillary services and, uh, and laser focused dedication to ensuring that you're getting the most out of every one of those ancillary services from the perspective of the airline was critical to the future success uh, of all of these legacies. Some of them, I, I, in my opinion, have executed well on that. Some are still working through doing that particular um, uh, exercise, but it was Spirit in particular that I'm most proud of that introduced it. And I think really showed the uh, the industry that this is the gold standard on how to not only provide air travel uh, in a safe, effective and cost-effective way to customers who may never have a chance to, to operate or to fly on an aircraft. We are really proud that we would fly into Haiti and pick up folks who would never have a chance to fly. Uh, but because of Spirit's pricing model, they had a chance to visit family and friends and, and really get to you know, continue to experience what aviation had to offer. But from a shareholder perspective, that laser focus on ancillary revenue really created a great return. And, uh, and I think that uh, what Spirit did to transform the industry is probably one of the most monumental things in the last 20 years.
2: Well, it was fun working with you on that too, Ken. When you went to Airbus... Obviously, we were disappointed when you left us at Spirit. But when you went to Airbus, you mentioned in your last answer that you had a better sense of how different airlines used the same airplane. But what did you learn while working for a manufacturer especially? And what else from your airline background made you so valuable to Airbus?
4: Yeah, thanks, uh, Ben. And uh, to reiterate what you said, it was a whole lot of fun working together. So it's sad to sad to leave. It's uh, it was, and it's been fun watching where Spirit's gone and and, and your career as well. Joining the manufacturer uh, was what was interesting about it, as I alluded to earlier. Was when you're working for an airline, especially on the operation side, you know your airline cold. Uh, you know the ins and outs, how it all works, what makes it tick, uh, and what you need to be doing. Moving over to uh, manufacturer, you you get to see customers that are all using the same aircraft, but they're doing it in such a different way. And it was fascinating to see how uh, each airline chose to deploy the aircraft, train their crew, how they would man it, uh, how they would uh, service the aircraft, what what was on board, what was not, uh, the tools that they would use to support their crews. And a couple of things uh, early on, um, Airbus's idea was that they wanted to hire a customer and so that's uh, how I ended up there. The, uh, a lot of really talented engineers and support staff work at Airbus on the commercial side for sure, uh, but not a lot of customers. And so to be able to come in and, and, as they were working through different initiatives and ideas, you could weigh in and provide some advice on that. I found that eventually um, what I got called into most often was um, getting an idea pitched and then would a customer actually pay for this? And that was. Um, uh, something that was a lot more uh, vibrant and dynamic as far as conversations went because people are really emotionally attached to their project. And when you come in and go, yeah, I don't think an airline's actually going to pay for that because they're not going to see any value. And most importantly, they can't turn that costly initiative around into something that makes them money. So that was was really interesting and enjoyable working through that. Um, Later in my time at Airbus, getting involved on the sales side, uh, you can go in and, and talk to a potential customer and say, you know, from an operator's perspective, let me talk to you about the A team and the B team. I'm fortunate in my career to to both uh, operate uh, Boeing aircraft and Airbus aircraft, so I could, you know, speak with authority on both sides. You'd always give the caveat, you know, I work for Airbus, so you, you you know you need to take this with a grain of salt. But let me tell you what I've seen uh, on both aircraft types and and the level of service, the level of product uh, differentiation and how often both of the, the manufacturers are spending time upgrading and enhancing their product, th- those type of things. So it, it was nice to be able to sit in that seat, offer that kind of advice, uh, support you know, the manufacturer with Airbus, but also feel that you're helping your friends uh, that you used to uh, compete with and compete against at the other airlines that now were your customers uh, to help them understand how best to take advantage Uh, of that aircraft. And when it came time to buy and replace, how to provide some advice as to uh, what they should be looking for.
2: Well, we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Ken McKenzie, which is brought to you with the support of Pratt & Whitney. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is redefining aviation with up to 20% lower fuel burn, 50% fewer regulated emissions, and 75% smaller noise footprint, GTF engines have no comparison. This revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther and with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Ken, you've continued
1: to pilot aircraft um, and it had, in fact, a pretty scary air crash. Um, would you tell our listeners about that story and how it changed you?
4: Sure. Thanks, Chris. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm a passionate aviation uh, wonk, I guess, uh, aviation geek, and have managed to do uh, uh, operate aircraft when someone's paying you to do it and actually finding it more enjoyable later on when you're paying for it yourself, it suddenly becomes uh, uh, more focused that you, uh, you spend more time reading up on uh, the latest innovations that are happening out there. And and most importantly, you just meet some really amazing people that are out flying. Um, I, I was fortunate to uh, picked up an aircraft that was I was using to commute between Florida and, and Virginia when I was working for Airbus. And uh, it was a great project rebuilding this Lancer 4P And one of the concepts we wanted to turn the cockpit into something as advanced as an A350 and with modern day avionics, especially uh, from an experimental certification uh, perspective, you can put some really amazing equipment in your aircraft. So I had had this really sweet little airplane that you jump into and you could climb up to 25,000 feet and cruise along at 250 knots and, and get to DC in a short period of time. Uh, it was August 30th, 2015, the day before my birthday. My wife had said, I'm going to come with you for this week while you're commuting. It's birthday present to you. and I was excited about that, and, and uh, we jumped in the airplane to leave. It was a Sunday morning and uh, really miserable weather, a bit of a tropical storm off the coast of Florida, and uh, departed IFR out of Fort Lauderdale Executive, and as I was climbing up through 4,400 feet, I looked down and on the uh, electronic display uh, in front of me that I saw my oil pressure was at nine uh, PSI and it should have been up around 35 PSI. And typical pilot, I, I almost I was just reaching forward to tap the screen. when I realized it's a screen, it's not going to do anything. If you tap it, it's not a round gauge. It's not stuck. It's uh, you actually have nine PSI of oil pressure. Uh, declared an emergency. Miami uh, center gave us vectors back to Fort Lauderdale executive and and operating the aircraft, stay at L2, don't touch the controls, just or the power, just let it continue to run. Hopefully, this will get us home. And as we broke out of cloud and could see our executive in front of us and they switched us over to tower frequency, the engine died. And so we thought, well, um, now we're a glider. And uh, what uh, what will we do? And my, my wife had 60 hours of experience at that point. She was working on her private license. And surprisingly, a combination of just years of training and uh, and going through simulators and simulated emergencies and such that rather than panicking and, uh, and and starting to lose sight of what to do, uh, the old adage, aviate, navigate, communicate, um, it actually became somewhat of a training moment. And knowing we wouldn't make the airport, um, also knowing I didn't want to land in the center of town, uh, the Lancer 4P is a very high performance airplane, it touches down at about 105 to 110 knots. So you're, you're not going to stop in a short period of time um, chose to turn off to the West and head to the Everglades. And while flying there, uh, talking with Sonya and saying, well, where do you think we should land? And should we try this? And should we do that? And, uh, we picked, uh, a canal, uh, a levee between two canals in the Everglades and it was north, south looked great. And it's funny, I joke, um, that there should be a sign in the cockpit that says caution objects on the ground appear much larger than they actually are <laughs> from the air, they appear much larger than they are on the ground. Uh, we went back there uh, months later to look at the levee that we landed on. It was, uh, turned out it was nine feet wide and our landing gear was seven feet wide. So we, um, uh, set up for the approach where my wife uh, said, what should I do? And I said, if you could call up my airspeed, that would be beneficial. I can look outside. And I said, and you can pray, that would be great too. So she did. Um, we touched down on that levee, uh, at about 96, I think it was 96, 97 knots. And went zipping down, uh, this, uh, uh, kind of unprepared surface. And by the NTSB examiner afterwards uh, said, "Well, you almost made it. We made it about 750 feet down that uh, that levee, and with the strong crosswind we were getting from the storm off the coast, the as the aircraft started to slow, the remember the nose starting to drift to the left, and uh, the left landing gear dropped off the edge of the levee, and it was a steep 45 degree drop. And when it did, the left landing gear broke off, spun the aircraft around, and now we were going backwards, about estimated about 60 knots." And I was concerned that if we ended up in the levee, uh, upside down uh, would not be good because the the door on the Lancer, there's only one and it opens up. And so I looked over our shoulder to see where we were going. And it was just uh, that was when I realized we were encased in a ball of flames. The landing gear breaking off had broken up, opened the fuel tanks and the heat of the engine uh, ignited the aircraft. And so we're zipping along backwards, uh, engulfed in flames. And fortunately, we came to a stop half in the canal, half out of the canal uh, on, a, on the really steep 45 degree angle. I'd already uh, opened the door, jumped out on the wing, uh, reached back to get Sonia and, and grabbed her hand and pulled her out of the airplane. And our hand slipped and she fell back in. And so I grabbed her hand again and thought, well, you're either coming with me or we I guess we're going to uh, die here in the aircraft. Because it was all in flames and my clothes were on fire and such. So pulled her out. And this time she came out of the airplane right up onto the wing. Uh, and the miraculous part was as she came out of the plane, there's a circle around us of no flames. And, uh, and between our airplane and the canal, there's this like the parting of the Red Sea. There's this path of flames on either side and, and nothing in the middle. And so I, I kind of dragged her over these rocks and stones and we dove into the water. And in my case, it was great because I had been on the wing now for a, a while uh, with all the flames actually there while I was there. So I was pretty burnt up. Um, she fortunately wasn't. And um, when we hit the water and, and treading water felt good for me and popped up out of the out of the water. I'm treading, looking at her and she looks at me and says, do you think there's any alligators in here? <laughs> I realized, oh, I guess there probably are. We should get out of this canal. And uh, We swam to shore and stood up on the levee and watched our airplane continue to burn. Uh, and, and for those folks who uh, who are flying privately or, or even commercially, you think, well, if, you know, if everyone went down, I'd get rescued right away. Uh, we were within sight of Fort Lauderdale, uh, the built-up area, and it still took 45 minutes to get anybody there because they were trying to figure out how do we get out to this levee. Uh, the helicopters were all locked up because of the storm off the coast, and so 45 minutes later, everybody showed up, and then uh, then it went uh, went it all went crazy and ended up spending uh, months in the hospital in the burn unit and such. But, you know, things have worked out really well. We recovered really well. It was uh, great stories throughout that experience of how your friends uh, all show up and you start to realize that it's a, our aviation community, it, although it might be uh, a lot of people, that uh, uh, it's small enough that folks still really care about each other. And uh, I felt really uh, loved and cared for through the entire recovery.
1: That that's an amazing story, Ken. I appreciate your sharing it. I know our our listeners will too. So uh, thanks for all that.
2: Thank you, Ken, for sharing that for sure. What amazed me is that you can tell that story so calmly and almost to the point where I could imagine you and Sonia in the cockpit staying calm trying to understand your situation and your years and years of training sort of all coming together in that cockpit at that moment in time where everything was just focused on, let's get this thing on the ground safely. What an amazing thing. That would make a great TV special, I think. Well, thanks, Ben. I'm not sure who would play you. Any ideas?
4: The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have my ideas. I'm sure Sonia has hers
2: too. <laughs> are they the, the same, same person? Are they I'm
1: the sure. same? Yeah, I was going to say, are they the same person?
2: So. <laughs> All right, well, let's go and now let's talk about where we are today and going forward. You're on the board of this new airline, Canada Jetlines. How does Canada Jetlines fit? Into a country with these two big players, one of whom you worked for, and a range of others like Flair, Porter, and others.
4: Great question, Ben. Really interesting time in Canada, and uh, well, interesting time around the world with what COVID has done for us in aviation, or done to us, I guess is the way to describe it. Looking at it, um, this is my my you know Ken McKenzie's view. So please don't uh, attribute this to anyone else. And I and I know that these type of topics can get really Excited and heated uh, as we each try to debate and understand what's happening and what's happening next. Um, in my view, in the time that I'd spent in uh, the aviation industry in Canada and watching it uh, throughout the years, you know, Canada is a really uh, unique place in that you have a vast amount of, of land and a really small number of people. So the aviation industry is critically important just because of the size uh, and vastness of the country. And at the same time, you know, Canadians, very affluent country folks want to be able to take their holiday and head someplace else other than the miserable weather that they get in the, in the wintertime. And so there's always a, a need for a, a good, safe, customer-focused airline. And I believe also, you know, not to be stereotypical, but Canadians reward airlines that provide great service. They're, they're proud of their heritage, they're proud of, of belonging to a, a really wonderful uh, country and And they like to see the folks who care for them do a great job. And we saw that at WestJet that uh, customer service, uh, even little tiny things, that extra mile that you go uh, would really differentiate you from your uh, competitors. Now, in my estimation, I look at it now, one of the the weaknesses of what happens in any industry is when you start to get competition pushed out by one or two major players, you become stagnant. Um, There's no real drive for innovation, you, you don't have to really work that hard anymore, and you become somewhat complacent. And we've seen that throughout the decades in Canadian aviation. When you get to two major players, things start to slow down, the, uh, the customers start to feel neglected, and it opens the door for uh, young startups to pop in there and, and chip away. And if they're really good, uh, they can go beyond chipping away and eventually rise up to become one of the major players as well. Um, that's a long ways and a long explanation to explain what Canada Jetlines is today and what it hopes to uh, aspire to one day. Uh, but our view uh, on the board is that uh, the opportunity is right, that uh, although we have two major players, we feel that both of them are, are, are somewhat stagnant in their view of how to care for customers. And there's not a lot of differentiation between what they're offering. The, uh, the idea behind the startups, as we look at our startup competitors like Flair and Lynx, is to provide uh, that product differentiation. We talked about the unbent unbundling that we had talked about earlier as well, and, and to do it in a way uh, that's young and vibrant and uh, really captures the imagination again of the traveling public. Um, we think we're in a great spot to do that. We've got uh, some great uh, investors, some really good setup on aircraft, um, and it's just a matter now of getting through the final authorizations from the CTA and Transport Canada. And then uh, once uh, we think the time is right in relation to the pandemic, then we'll launch our, our first routes and uh, and see where we can go.
1: You also serve on the board of the Experimental Aircraft Association. Uh, how important do you think that is right now to be supporting that sector of aviation?
4: Thanks, Chris, for the chance to, to give a pitch for Experimental Aircraft Association. A fantastic association has been around for a long time. And although it started out with the idea of let's help folks build their own airplane and experience the freedom of flight, it really is sports aviation. It covers all aspects and whether it be vintage, warbirds, experimental, uh, flight schools, everything's covered in there. And, uh, what I enjoy most about being on that, uh, the board and the vision that the board has, um, this industry has been fantastic for me. I I can't imagine a better career. Um, it's, uh, it's full of, every day is different. Uh, you get to explore the world. You get to meet fascinating people. Um, it, it, if you're bored in aviation, then you probably shouldn't be in aviation. And, uh, I've been rewarded a lot, um, by other people. A lot of people have come alongside me and, and really helped me out. If you don't mind me taking a second, just to tell a really quick story that helps explain why I believe it's so important to give back. And that's, I believe that's what the association is focused on. As a young officer cadet in the Royal Canadian Air Force, I was on sea survival in, in British Columbia, and one Saturday morning, we are just having breakfast at the officer's mess, and this gentleman comes in in his flight suit. We became friends afterwards as Captain Drew Folds, and he just kind of says out loud, anybody want to go for a ride in a voodoo? And if you remember, the voodoo is the old F-101 supersonic nuclear delivery aircraft that Canada and a number of NORAD, well, NORAD was using in NATO countries. And of course, all of us put our hand up. Fortunately for me, I won the short straw. and had to borrow a parachute and a helmet and a mask and everything. And we went on this flight. It was a flight of a lifetime. And we uh, go off, it's supersonic. You go zipping up and down the fjords of British Columbia, the beauty of it all. It was just amazing experience. And we came back and we landed and we back in. And he said, come on, come join me for a beer. So I said, sure. So we sat and we we're sitting there talking. And he said, you know, this morning I had to go do this flight test. And he said, I've flown this airplane a lot and I'm really comfortable with it. And I could have just jumped in it and gone off and done my flight test and come back. He said, but I knew you guys were all in the mess. And I thought, you know, this is a chance you'll never get, probably, to, to ride in the backseat of one of these airplanes. And that's why I came out and it took us a heck of a lot longer to get you all up to speed and and I had to be careful, you know, flying around, make sure that you're still having a good experience. He know it's a little bit of an inconvenience for me, but it's a it's an amazing experience for you. He said, I'm gonna all I ask you do for me in, in gratitude for the flight we just did is never fly with an empty seat. And uh, I took that to heart for the rest of my career and uh, make sure that you know, never fly with NFTC. I, I, I'm really fortunate. I've got uh, Sonny and I own a, a Stearman, 1941 Stearman, 1946 Air Coupe, and then a 1962 Beach 18. And when we go flying, I always try to find someone to take along because what might be mundane to you is a once in a lifetime ch- chance for them. And what the Experimental Aircraft Association is doing, and I think doing really well, is looking to say, how do we give back to an industry that's cared for all of us and that we it's our passion and, and belief that uh, this can be a great career for so many young men and women? And what the association is doing well through their Young Eagle flight, where you take a, a someone between 7 to 18 years old for their first flight uh, over to Aero Educate, which is a, um, a curriculum offering to K to 12 schools to work STEM and aviation into the science programs at, uh, at public and private schools, uh, to just you know being on the traveling, traveling out there, giving rides on B-25s, B-17s, Ford motors, just helping people grasp one, the passion uh, that we all have for aviation, and second, for young folks that you can be part of this. This is an amazing career for you too, uh, whether you be in flight dispatch or traffic control, maintenance, or a pilot, uh, this is something you can do. And we wanna make sure that no one later in life goes, wow, I wish I could have done that, but I just didn't know. And so that's why I'm really proud to be a part of it. It's a privilege to be a part of this organization. Uh, And and I just really um, am am thankful to have been given the opportunity and to continue to, to be a part of that team.
2: Thanks, Ken. And I think I have an idea of how you're going to answer this next question. But do you believe that we will see single pilot commercial flights in the next 50 or maybe 100 years?
4: That's a great question, uh, Ben, and one that uh, I know so many people are debating. Uh, My time at Airbus, there was a segment of time that I was the chief technology officer for the Americas working with Jean Boutte, the the CTO for Airbus, and his vision was electric propulsion. And uh, it was fascinating to work on that side of the industry where all the innovation and new ideas were coming from. And the combination of electric propulsion, uh, small aircraft and optionally piloted aircraft kind of became the forefront for us for a number of years. And so I got to spend a lot of time looking at who was doing really interesting things on autonomous flight. And I I do believe we will, uh, but I believe it's going to be graduated steps and not nearly as fast as some hope. Uh, There's a lot of money being invested in this, uh, a lot of people excited by the opportunity, but as we all know, uh, there's, there's one correct gate that these ideas have to go through and that's the regulator. There's a certain point at which uh, the governments of the world step in and go, well, hold on a second. Um, we're entrusted with the safety of the traveling public. Prove to us that this is safe. And from the time that I've spent doing this and continue to follow it afterwards, we're at the point where uh, an optionally piloted vehicle. So let's uh, say a, a large commercial aircraft with one pilot and a, we called it the robot, <laughs> sitting beside the pilot to be used. Um, as the, as the pilot and command sees fit, um, that could happen today. And, uh, what we deal with is the, the social norms, does somebody want to get in the back of that airplane while there's only one pilot or one day, maybe no pilots. And my belief is that we're not there yet. I don't think that the industry has done a good enough job of explaining, uh, the safety enhancements in doing so as well, uh, the, the innovation that's taken place with autonomous flight hasn't done a really great job of convincing pilots that this is a good idea either. And uh, you can see why the the agency conflict that takes place. So this is our career and you want to take it away and and have a machine do it. Uh, My view is that uh, we'll see autonomous flight uh, begin. uh, Well, it's not going to begin. It's already taking place. But in large aircraft, it's going to happen more on the cargo side. When I say it's already happening, it's surprising how much autonomous flight is occurring around the world that we just don't ever hear about. And uh, when you know, folks are, one good example is uh, there's a, a twin engine diamond aircraft that completely mapped the uh, Greenland doing glacier work. And it was a one month project and this aircraft flew the first day with a pilot to verify everything was working. And then for the next 30 days, it just flew itself. And it can fly longer. It can fly in worse weather. It can do a whole lot of things that you just don't want to stick a pilot in there uh, and have them do. So I believe uh, there's some great uh, opportunities for autonomous flight. And I think that there's also some safety enhancements that autonomy will bring to us.
1: So, Ken, you've had leadership roles in so many parts of aviation. As you sit here today, hopefully near the tail end of this pandemic, do you want to predict like one or two lasting impacts on commercial aviation that are going to flow out of the pandemic?
4: Sure. I mean, thank you for not asking me what I think of what's taken place with <laughs> <for> these <laughs> poor airlines. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been hard, uh, really, really hard. And uh, some of the really great things that have come out of it, the industry was forced to really pick up the standards in, in cleanliness and uh, and how aircraft are serviced. And I I still traveled throughout the pandemic, I still travel a lot now, and there's a significant difference between um, how aircraft and passengers, I guess, sanitary safety was treated, I believe, prior to the pandemic to where it is today. I think that's an amazing uh, step forward. Um, I think that we all realize that uh, a pandemic is just another, you know, the, unfortunately, COVID is just an advanced version of coming down with the flu sometimes. That um, in the past, we just accepted the fact that, well, if you fly on an airplane, eh, you could get sick. What the heck? It's going to happen. I I think that as we come out of this, we rightly should not expect that to be the norm. Um, I think that there are a lot of things that the airlines are now putting in place to make sure that um, our our passengers are as protected as possible from airborne viruses and other illnesses that we never would have before. And I don't know if that's really on the top of people's radar because there's lots of other things that people have commented on about what's been the pros and cons of this. But just from my, where I sit, that's the one that I've seen that I've been um, most intrigued by and actually most happy to, to, to witness.
2: Well, Ken, it's been terrific hearing your voice again, hearing you talk about your amazing career, the experiences you've had, what you've learned, and what you can still teach this industry. We really appreciate you coming out to Airlines Confidential, and I'm sure that our listeners are really going to enjoy this interview.
4: Well, thanks, Ben. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, ben and Chris, uh, great talking with you. Likewise, Ben, great to hear your voice. Brings back all kinds of great memories. Thrilled to be part of this podcast and look forward to meeting a lot of your your listeners online as we uh, continue to operate airplanes around the world, um, moving passengers and, and doing it safely and, and giving them a little bit of joy as they have a chance to see the wonder of
2: flight. Thanks, Ken. This has been great. Thank you. We'll be back with more Airlines Confidential in a minute.
0: The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com.
1: Thanks again to both Chris Sloan and Ken McKenzie for joining us. Now it's listener question time. Remember, you can email us a question at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. So Ben, we've got several questions related to frequent flyer programs, and American and Advantage are a common thread. I thought I'd string these together for a more comprehensive, cohesive discussion of the various topics. First up, this is from Steve in Springfield, Missouri. Hey, Ben and Chris, I love your show. And as an av geek and someone who travels for work, your show is both interesting and applicable to me. My question for you revolves around the new way Advantage members earn status with American, In October Advantage changed from elite qualifying miles, segments, and dollars to loyalty points. The way the program is structured seems to lean heavily on people with an affiliated credit card and those that are flying international business class. Do you see this as a way to thin the herd of top-tier flyers and bring back a higher level of exclusivity, or is it just about American getting more people to apply for their co-branded credit cards? I've been an executive platinum with AA for the past few years, and this change sealed the deal for me to take my business to another carrier, but that's just me. Just wondering what your take on this is.
2: Thank you, Steve. It's a great question. And this change, I'm sure, affected many people in the way it's affecting you or the way you perceive it. I don't think it's as much a calculated scheme to thin the herd, to use your words, or to bring back just a higher level of exclusivity. I think American is reeling just like the other big airlines are with a lack of business travel only running at about 60 or 65% of pre pandemic levels and much lower than that in the business class cabins on long haul transatlantic and trans Pacific routes. So they're saying, look, the number of people who were earning In this way has dropped precipitously. We have to keep these programs alive. And if the only way you can make these levels is to fly internationally in business class or fly for your business regularly, that might not be enough. So we have this credit card, we make a lot of money with the credit card, although we're not making as much now as we used to. So maybe there's the linkage. So by giving customers the ability to reach higher levels with just the credit card revenue, what they're doing I think is being pragmatic in a way that may disenfranchise a few people like you. They're being pragmatic is that, well, if your company isn't going to send you on as many trips and your company's not going to send you or you're not willing to travel long haul international yet, you can still spend a lot of money on the card. And since we get paid by the bank for the points that the bank issues you, we can make some more money that way and you can Keep your loyalty on American and show your loyalty in that way versus actually being on the airplanes. I don't know if this is a long-term thing American wants to do or if it's a reaction to the current rate of business travel and long-haul travel in play. I understand why you're reacting the way you do. I don't, but I don't think it's a scheme by American to try to squeeze people like you out. It's a way for American, I think, to say, how can we keep more people engaged at higher levels in the program?
1: Yeah, I agree completely, Ben. I don't see this as thinning the herd at all. I think it's um, inviting as many people to the party, hoping some show up. Business travels, that will take a I think a lot longer to come back than many people anticipated. There was some interesting commentary about the really low attendance rates at CES in Las Vegas this month, really kind of missing the mark as far as expectations. So I think all the carriers are struggling with this paradigm and how to keep their top tier customers engaged and loyal and coming back. And I get that Steve feels like he's been flying and meeting the criteria, but A lot of his peers have not, and American and these other major legacy carriers have got to figure out how to keep them uh, coming back. Then part two, uh, this is from Christina in New York. Ben and Chris, can you explain what American is thinking with regard to the lawsuit with the Points Guy? I'm a young professional and I travel a lot for work. All my peers love the Points Guy newsletter. We choose TPG over American any day, and AA is also uncompetitive with other major airlines because they still have a points expiration clause where United and Delta do not. Actions like this don't encourage my loyalty, but would be interested in your thoughts.
2: Thanks, Christina. This is an interesting lawsuit, and I don't think it's because American is trying to hide what they do. I think this is all about... Intellectual property rights. I'm not an attorney, but I think that's the right term. The Advantage program is very important to American. It's an important piece of what they do. During the pandemic, they were able to borrow money with that program as collateral by stressing its strengths as a marketing program. So specifically what I think they are upset with the points guy in is that they're using the American airlines logo. They're accessing people's accounts on advantage without American having to prove them to get into your account. You approve it. But American says we have to approve that too. And so they're getting information that American says, you don't have the right to use this information and use our logo. I think what the TPG site is doing is helpful to consumers, but Americans saying you can't just steal our data so that you can run a comparison site and let people manage their points that way. It's a line in the sand, I think, around who owns the data and who owns the customer. And American is making a strong position that TPG, you don't have this relationship with the customer, we do. And that's an interesting thing. Christina, I think it's interesting that you say we choose TPG over American. I assume you mean for your frequent flyer data, since TPG can't fly you anywhere, right? (laughs) And so I think this is interesting. I understand why American wants to protect those data and protect that program. There's probably a way to make this work for the points guy and American to maybe create some partnership because what the points guy is doing is helpful to customers. And I'm sure American sees that. When it comes to the points expiration, this is just another whole issue. And um, maybe we can talk about that on another show because it gets into how these programs are accounted for and what airlines call breakage, meaning what percentage of the points are never used. And it's hard to make that assumption when the points never expire. And by putting some sort of expiration date on them, it makes it easy to manage the financial statements of these accounts. But that's a real complicated issue. It's totally understandable why customers don't want their points to expire, and I'm sure it's totally frustrating that Americans will expire while United's and Delta's won't right now, but a lot goes into that decision, and what I would hope American would do is either end up matching United and Delta, or at least giving customers who are actively engaged in their program the ability to not lose points as long as they stay active.
1: A couple of thoughts on that. That's those are all good points, Ben. One, I took her comments about we'd choose TPG over American any day is kind of like as a consumer, me and my peers would put our loyalty to the Points Guy over American, but that's just an interpretation. Somewhere buried in the T's and C's of the Advantage program and most other loyalty programs, I mean, American tells its its passengers. Ultimately, these points belong to us, not to you. I don't think most consumers realize that. You can be kicked out of the Advantage program or most other loyalty programs for not following the rules, but clearly when these programs were developed now 30 years ago or whatever it's been, they didn't anticipate many of the technological advances and the transparency of information that we have today. And you're right. Americans like pointing to more of the copyright and intellectual property issues. They actually countersued the points guy. The points guy sued them kind of preemptively sued American. But I really think it just underscores to some degree the changing marketplace as well. I, I don't think a lot of people pay attention to the T's and C's. This email that came in reminded me years ago when I was an American and we were in a fight over expanding Love Field and the American management at the time, led by Bob Crandall, kept like you know shouting it at, at meetings and in public. You know, a deal's a deal. We built DFW on the promise that Love Field was going to be shut down. Uh, you know, that's all relevant except that the people who live in Texas now didn't live especially in the DFW area, it's grown so much. They didn't live in the DFW area when the deal for Love Field and DFW was made 50 years ago or something. And they just want access to more flights at Love Field. It's more convenient. And so we, we lost that public conversation because we didn't understand that the point of view of the public had changed. It didn't matter about the deal being the deal. So there's this element of like, you know, the rules are the rules, that might require American to go back and look at the rules again and make them more relevant to today's marketplace, too. But, you know, I think they have a reason to want to limit access to the Advantage database, clearly, because it's, it's their database. But I think they also have to kind of manage their expectations with their customers a bit.
2: That's great insight, Chris. Well, let's pivot to our finer wine for the week. And just in case we haven't exhausted our discussion on airline loyalty programs, we've got a complaint about Delta and American Express. It's from Jennifer in Duluth, Minnesota. I decided to apply for one of Delta's credit cards because of what it offers. Instead, they gave me an entirely different card with zero benefits that I did not apply for. Interesting. Had they given me any kind of info that this was the card I was applying for, I would not have wasted my time applying simply because it offers absolutely nothing.
1: I'm going to step out on a limb here and say, Jennifer, this is a wine. And I'm guessing, even though I don't have a lot of insight into her background or her credit history, she probably didn't qualify for the Amex card that had all these benefits and lots of bonus miles and whatever else, but they wanted to kind of lure her into the program. And so they gave her the kind of the basic Delta Amex card that doesn't have an annual fee and you earn fewer miles and that doesn't have all the benefits, but they were trying to give her an opportunity to get into the program with an entry level card. I could be off here, but they have no reason to not want to give her the card that she thought she applied for it, except maybe she didn't qualify for it.
2: I think you're absolutely right, Chris, and I do think this is a whine. I'm not saying that she should thank Delta for, you know, or an American Express for offering her credit. I mean, when she says it offers absolutely nothing, they clearly gave her credit that she can borrow against, right? In the card I'm sure she means in terms of maybe her ability to upgrade or get a free bag or something like that, which maybe are the kind of features that she wanted. But like you said, this kind of creates a pathway for her to potentially move into a card that does that. So while she doesn't see it that way, I'm sure the fact that they didn't just say no, I think they did a pretty good thing by offering her this card.
1: Yep. So listeners, as we prepare for landing, it's time for our shout outs of the week. And I'm going to give mine to United Airlines for the opening of its United Aviate Academy Flight School in Arizona. It's probably the most tangible and impactful effort yet by a major airline in the U.S. to address its future pilot needs. And it's combined with a commitment to make sure that at least 50% of the students are women and minorities. So good luck to United and all of its uh,
2: prospective students. Good shout out, Chris. Mine goes to Airbus for creating the Airbus Beluga cargo operation. The Beluga, as many of our listeners know, is a modified A300 that Airbus uses to bring big parts into their assembly facility. But the Beluga is being replaced with the Beluga XL, and it leaves this fleet of five Belugas Sort of with nothing to do, and rather than just part out the planes, Airbus said, let's create a business to carry cargo since these things are so big. And while some may say, well, that doesn't deserve a shout out because they're just trying to make money on an old piece of equipment, I get that. But we're also in a world where supply chains are still very critical. And these five airplanes, with their enormous volume, will be helpful for people to move more goods around the world. So I think it's great that Airbus is finding a way to repurpose older equipment in a way that's going to help the economies in Europe and the U.S. at least.
1: With that, let's say goodbye for the week. And we look forward to seeing you back here next week. Thanks for listening.
2: Have a great week.
0: This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.